we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. I'm Liz Guinness and welcome to Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Chris Bray, Australian Geographic photographer, adventurer and all-round swell guy. Chris has a fascinating life story, sailing around the world with his parents. That adventurous start set him on a path that would define the rest of his life. Crossing an Arctic island, towing a cart, to sailing around the Northwest Passage and opening up an eco-friendly lodge on Christmas Island, Chris shares all of this with us today. Hi, Chris. Uh, thank you for joining us on Talking Australia. For everyone who uh, doesn't know, Chris Bray is an amazing photographer um, who has worked for Australian Geographic for many years, and he's got a lot of other interesting projects that we're going to uh, talk through today. So welcome to uh, the podcast, Chris. Thanks very much, Liz. Good to be here. Yeah, lovely to speak to you. Um, it's been quite a few years since I've seen you. Um, and our first job with Australian Geographic together was uh, a, an assignment in Papua New Guinea. Do you remember that? I do. I was just thinking about that the other day, actually. I put up some photos on my Instagram account and just so many good memories of that trip. Yeah, it was amazing. And was that, from memory, was that your first um, big assignment for Australian Geographic? Yeah, it was. It was like right in at the deep end. It was, uh, yeah, the first, was that the first time Australian Geographic had ever sent a photographer overseas on a, on a trip? And we had a pretty broad brief. Yeah. We were basically told to find cool stuff and photograph it and, and get good stories. It was great. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I think, the, I think the technical term was shoot the shit out of it. Is that, uh, is that how we would have expressed it in I, a photographer's terms? I think, yeah, I think that's what was in the contract, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, it was an incredible trip. Um, but what I'd, And I, we'll talk about that more, I think, because I think people would really like to know um, what it is like being a photographer on an Australian Geographic um, uh, assignment. But before we do that, I want to take you right back to your childhood, if we can, because I don't think it was a traditional childhood in many aspects. And I'm hoping you can um, explain to people where your wanderlust has come from. Hmm. I was lucky mm. enough to grow up on a sailboat that my parents made in the backyard. And I grew up for five years sailing around the world uh, from age five until 10. So basically instead of primary mm -hmm. school, I still did school, but it was correspondent schooling, but uh, there was mm -hmm. no way to correspond back then. So we just ah. kind of worked, worked through it at our own rate and actually threw the bits of paper over the side when we were finished, but probably shouldn't say that these days. <laughs> well, I, I guess there's some, you know, uh, with everything that's going on in the world at the moment with COVID-19, um, I'm sure you would have some tips on how to, how to school your children and throw the pieces of paper um, in the bin once you're done. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I still hated homeschooling because it took up a whopping two hours a day every day. And I thought that was incredibly unfair, massive imposition on my, my free time and my fishing time. 
uh, it wasn't until ah. kind of got home and was like, wow, normally you actually have to spend like six hours or more at school. Um, it was, it did teach me a good work ethic though, because if you've just got a set amount of work to do, you just, you sort of get taught to just, just get through and get it done and then you're free. And the, the more efficient you are at it, the, the sooner you're free. Whereas back at home, it was sort of like, oh, it doesn't really matter. You can try or not. And you're still stuck there for the same the afternoon so that's yeah. so true I, um, i'm interested to know though if you're um you work through it and you get it done in two hours what are you free to do when you're on a boat fish what else is there to well, do yeah there's fish or there's depends on where you are in the world and obviously we were sailing around to the most amazing places like we went to south africa mm-hmm. and that's where i got my love of of wildlife and we went to some of the game reserves there and uh, it was right. the one time we, we kind of splurged and hired a car and, and went inland. And it was mm-hmm. just the most amazing thing, seeing all these wild animals or um, out at sea. You can, apart from fishing, yeah, you've got cool birds flying around. And you've, I guess my sister and I had quite a, uh, we had to be very inventive and have a good imagination to come up with uh, a whole mm. world of, of make-believe toys and we actually did have some toys. It was a make-believe world <laughs> around the toys. Uh, and, yeah, we're just, I'm just building things and um, making everything from little kites to little Lego Technic things. And there's always stuff to do as a kid. Yeah. Just, just, if you're, if you're yeah. ashore, then great. We'd go and make cubby houses up some river or, yeah, it was fun. I had a pretty, pretty uh, free childhood, really. Could do whatever. Yeah, I feel like um, – and – this would probably be reasonable to say, I feel like it, it um, set the course for you for the rest of your life. I, I don't know from what I, what I do know of you and the conversations we've had over the years, um, an office job was never going to cut it for you. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I became an engineer, electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. I think I'm a fourth or a fifth generation engineer. So maybe that was always going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But then applying that homeschooling uh, work ethic perhaps I did well back at school when I when I came back to real school for high school and that mm-hmm. possibly had a, a bigger impact on on my life than than anything else because I was just following down the kind of like an academic sort of route I was just getting good good marks and fell into the I was like a basket case nerd really and just got kind of lumped in wherever that was going to go uh, and so I wasn't like the most popular kid or particularly outdoorsy or anything at, at high school. And then mm-hmm. I got a good, good scholarship for university and it was just, it paid for more than my... Did, wasn't it a Rhodes scholarship? Uh, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, I wish. Yes. The, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where did I hear the, that? The, I don't know where I heard that. At the end of uh, my, my electrical engineering degree, the uni put me forward for a Rhodes scholarship for the next, like for the... Ah. For, next level stuff but I was mm-hmm. by then too far having way too much fun doing all the adventuring and photography and uh, I, I said to turn that down so but I probably wouldn't have been selected right, that's anyway. Where I heard <laughs> <you>. Right okay. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah I think it was more that because I got this scholarship to do university that paid for uni fees and also still had quite a lot left over and I ended up spending that on uh, the first sort of bigger adventures. I chartered little little planes into remote areas of Tasmania with with a high school friend, mm-hmm. uh, Jasper, mm-hmm. and, and we sort of hiked out yep. from from these amazing places in the middle of nowhere. And I wouldn't have been able to afford to do that had I not had that scholarship. And to be honest, that first big adventure was way bigger than it was 
uh, supposed to be. And it was really just supposed to be an adventurous sort of hike. And it turned into like a, mm-hmm. a massive, massive expedition that had, uh, of course, Australian Geographic sponsorship. And it just introduced me to the whole world of, of really exciting journeys. And that then... So where was that to again, to just remind everybody? That was uh, basically along the west, southwest coast of Tassie. So we flew into mm-hmm. um, part of Port, Port Davie. And then instead of following the usual yeah. south coast track out to the south, um, we hiked along the coast to the north up to Strong. So it took about a month of, mm. of un, untracked hiking, no, no trails. So it was just hacking our way through. Uh, I was going to say you would be hacking bushes. with machetes. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's but it, I reckon it'd be easier slog. now because there were plenty of times where we'd battle our way for days through this horrendous scrub and then finally pop out into this open button grass plain that was apparently stretching for like kilometers just just slightly further inland than we had been battling our way through and had had we had like google images or something back then we would have, <laughs> we, would have we would have known had we been five meters to the left uh, or the right we would have had much easier terrain but anyway it was still fun yeah yeah definitely so that shaped things for you i would imagine as well yeah i would say that that hike and particularly the Australian mm-hmm. Geographic sponsorship from that. And they gave us their Young Adventurer of the Year medal for that year and all mm-hmm. the, everything that flew from, from that, really, I would say, really changed my life and, and set up for all the things I did since then. So um, from there, where did you go? What was your next big adventure? Uh, after that, after the Tassie hike, uh, then I was still at university. But then I wanted to, mm-hmm. I met up with a friend uh, or a guy I didn't know at the time, actually, Clark, Clark Carter. And we decided we wanted to go on some epic Arctic adventure. We thought that was the next, that would be a good, good place to go and have fun. And we poured over various maps and, and came across Victoria Island in that tangled mess of islands above yeah. Canada in the Arctic archipelago. And there's this one big island there that's uh, quite a lot of it was just still kind of unexplored, even the, the Inuit elders were saying that there were whole regions there that they'd never been to because the the caribou populations that they used to follow uh, didn't go to certain parts of the island and they basically said yeah no no idea what's out there and we thought that's pretty cool mm-hmm. in this this day and age and so we decided we'd try and be the first people to walk across this island so it's about a thousand kilometers it's the ninth largest mm-hmm. island in the world and and then we, we set about trying to work out how on earth do you how do you do that? How do you bring enough food and supplies and um, safety gear and all of that to try and... be so completely self-supported? Yeah, yeah. So much to bring mm-hmm. with you. It ended up, ended up being uh, 250 kilos each. And obviously you can't just pop that in a backpack. So we had to then design some <laughs> weird craft to, to be able to cross both uh, land and water because there's, uh, it's like a patchwork of lakes. Up yeah, there. I remember seeing photos of that where you were experimenting with different carts and wheels and, and methods to, to move all that equipment. Um, it'd be wonderful if you could talk people through how it all, how it all came together and, and what you actually used in the end. Yeah, it was quite a process. So if you look at a map of the island, uh, if you zoom right in, it's like a, a patchwork quilt of, of lakes and flat, tundra looking stuff and ice shattered limestone regions and mountains and rivers and uh, it's just so many different types of terrain and we're just trying to think of what kind of craft could we use to to get through all of that stuff um, like a kayak would be great for the all the wet bits in the rivers but but then mm. then what do you do when you get to the the land so we designed this uh, what we called a paddleable amphibious cart or pac a pack 
Uh, so we just chucked everything in the pack. Uh, it was just like an aluminium, <laughs> aluminium kayak with fold-down wheels. So you could uh, haul it, kind of shackle up to a harness and tow it behind you over the land. And then if you get to a big enough body of water that it was worth not walking around it, uh, you could fold the wheels up and turn it into a kayak and paddle across and get out the other end and put the wheels back down and keep going. And tell me, did you, was that based on anything you'd seen before or was this your engineering skills coming into play in a really big way? I think that was probably my, my engineering madness uh, shining through. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the best idea in the end because it was like either I should have gone for a, either a really good cart or a really good kayak mm-hmm. and not this right. kind of terrible, terrible morph of both of them that was a pretty terrible job at, at either situation. But because um, we had a really good cart, we could have just walked around all the lakes and had we had right. a, a boat or something, we could have probably tried to link up a few more rivers and things. But we learned a lot on that first first attempt because it actually took two attempts to get across that island. Okay, and so you made some changes in the, in the interim between the first and the second t- attempt? Yeah, definitely. We had, I think it was two or three years of, of licking our wounds and, and working out what went, went wrong. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> after, I think, 58 days out there the first time, and we were supposed to have easily mm-hmm. got across the whole island by then. But we were only about a third of the way across and, and winter was kicking in and it was getting bitterly cold. Mm. And we only just managed to find a, a pretty gung-ho pilot who was willing to come in and, and try and land on this non-existent airstrip and, and pluck us out of there. But then we redesigned everything and came up with these a uh, pack version 2, which was still a mm-hmm. cart. Uh, but with enormous wheels. So instead of having car tires on it, which the other one did, um, this time it was really big inflatable uh, tractor inner tubes, so enormous wheels. Mm-hmm. And that, the idea of that was it would spread the load and stop the, the cart sinking into the mud or breaking through the ice and into the snow and all of that. Um, and then there was a big, the kind of base of the cart was the same shape as the floor plan of the tent. So we didn't need to spend ages looking for somewhere to pitch a tent in all this endless razor-sharp shattered rock. Uh, we could actually oh. just haul until, until we couldn't haul anymore and snap the two carts together. And then it formed like a stable four-wheel platform that we could put the tents on. And it was also buoyant then. If you join the two together, it floated on those four wheels. So we could then go across lakes mm-hmm. and down rivers if we, if we needed to. Obviously not as efficiently as a, as a kayak, but it was just a much better cart. So we could haul around most of these um, watery patches. And and so obviously this was successful the second time around? Just. By the skin of our teeth, we got Just. to the far side <laughs> with uh, everything shredded and broken. And But we did we did get there, yeah, finally, uh, after I think 75 days. Oh, my Lord. And then were you very happy to be flown out and, and nowhere cold for quite some time? We would have been very happy to have been flown out, but um, by the time we mm-hmm. finished the season there, there were no planes left on the island because it was all bitterly cold and, and end of the mining season. And so we actually just sat on the far side of this island trying to work out how we were going to get off there because there was a guy who was supposed to come and pick us up by boat. But uh, mm-hmm. as luck would have it, he got thrown in prison a couple of days before he was supposed to come and rescue us. So we were stranded on the, on the <laughs> west coast of this remote <laughs> island trying to work, work out ideas. And we just happened to spot a, a huge ocean-going tugboat going past in the distance. It was pulling, it had just sort of decommissioned a mining camp further up in the Arctic and was just pulling it back to, to the mainland. And with some very quick satellite phone calls and getting a, getting a few friends onto the internet back at home, uh, we managed to work out what, what company it was likely dismantling and then a few other phone calls. And sooner or later, we actually managed to get a sat phone for the, for the captain on the tug. 
and mm -hmm. called him up and were like, yeah, do you see that? You see that island off to your uh, to your left? Yeah, there's there's just mm -hmm. two two Australian boys kind of stuck on that point there, and we're looking for a way to, to get out of here. <laughs> and uh, and it was amazing that he just kind of and he was towing all these barges of of, of stuff, so he couldn't just stop because they'd all just run into each other. So he just began mm -hmm. this enormous set of, of loops out there uh, to keep it keep everything in motion while they then dropped in there, uh, dropped in a dinghy and rushed ashore and managed to get pluck us out of there, pluck us out of all the polar bears and. And then take us back on board and gave us unrationed food and the cook just totally mothered us and made us all these chocolate brownies oh. and had the first shower in 75 days it was pretty good yeah i imagine and i'm i'm so i imagine you would have um enjoyed some uh food treats as well while you were on, on board with them absolutely i think we, we put on all the weight that we lost in the in the couple of days it took us to get back to canada we've made it off the island we've made it back to canada um and then what happens in your life chris where do you go to from there after an, an expedition like that I, I imagine just regular everyday life must seem pretty mundane well i so i came back from that trip and then what happened i um i'd finished my engineering degree by then but i decided not to mm -hmm. go for for that kind of uh, career, because by then I was having way too much fun doing all this. And, yeah. But I was trying to work out how do you make a living out of, of being a, a professional adventurer? Mm -hmm. Sponsors had been what paid for my first car. And like I, I had been doing a lot of uh, motivational speaking and some photography gigs and this and that, and wrote a book, The Thousand Hour Day, on that adventure. And so little bits of income yep. coming here and there, but it wasn't really a full on on income and I was a little bit scared about trying to just move from one big adventure to the next uh, because it just meant that you know in the end I'd probably end up dead and it still mm. just involves enormous amounts of planning and like these trips that Arctic trip was really five years in the making by the time we got it all worked out and we had to raise a quarter of a million dollars which was quite a lot for just two university students so they're, they're enormous no, I think it's, uh, it's a lot for anyone really yeah yeah so to, to kind of have to keep doing that one after another uh, to kind of keep keep yourself in in a job was wasn't, wasn't something I really wanted to keep escalating until something went wrong. Mm. Um, so I was trying to think, mm. well, which 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 bits of income stream here can I make a, a real career out of? And I decided that photography was something I had a lot of fun with. Uh, I had been sponsored by a Canon on that Arctic trip, and so I've been lent yep. uh, some really cool gear. And I do remember photographing. A particular arctic fox that was really curious and came right up in perfect lighting and i got a few really beautiful photos of it and i remember thinking at the time like wow i want to be a wildlife photographer i reckon that would be cool and so that that kind mm. of stuck in my head and when i came back but it was you know what was that 2008 2009 ish and everyone had great cameras by then and the world was flooded with amazing quality photos and as a you know magazines could go online and buy excellent photos from stock libraries for about 50 cents and so mm. trying to make a living out of selling photos of cute animals was was already impossible and getting harder yeah so um i was lucky enough to get a, a gig on a cruise ship down to antarctica as their official photographer and it was just a volunteer trip but uh, i noticed on board that all the guests had the most amazing camera gear but they were all just wasted on uh on auto mode really so yes, more because i just right. felt I was just filling in time on that journey south. I invented a quick photography course uh, and just ran that on board the ship for those people that weren't seasick at the time. And the, <laughs> everyone who turned up was like, this is amazing. This is great. When is your next course? Uh, and just a bit of quick thinking, I was like, oh, uh, I haven't got the exact date 
organized for this yet, but if you add your email address to this list, uh, when I get back home, I'll let you know when the next, uh, next course is running. And so that's what happened after the Antarctic trip. I went home and spent the next three months designing what I hoped would be the ultimate one-day photography course, uh, and then emailed that list of, of people, and uh, also any other contacts and friends I had, like Australian Geographic. Um, so Chrissy Goldrick back then was picture editor, and, and she came along she was. to the course. That's our yeah. managing, now, managing editor for people who don't know now, yeah, our editor-in-chief, yeah. yep. So that was terrifying, having having her along for the for the first day, and <laughs> a few, few things inevitably went wrong, but but it was great. So I hired out a function room in in Taronga Zoo in Sydney because I thought zoos would be a great place for a photography course because they have great conference facilities. So you've got a good place to to project and and learn all bits of theory, and then step outside and you've got lions and tigers and bears to practice on, and then you go back inside and they've got good catering and that kind of stuff. So that really took off really well. And pretty soon we were doing them all around Australia and all the main cities. Uh, sometimes about four or five days a week, we were just flying endlessly to these different places and doing all these these courses. So that grew very rapidly. And, mm -hmm. we're, and after about a year or two of that, I was thinking, uh, well, we're, or, or the, I guess after a year or two of that, a lot of the customers were saying, well, that's great. I'm all skilled up now, but what do I, what do I do with all this newfound passion? I want to go and photograph animals and stuff like you. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's um, start running photography tours. And that's where the, the business evolved into running these small group, high-end uh, photography tours to initially just Tasmania, but then rapidly to uh, over to Africa, to Kenya. And now yep. uh, we're... <clears throat> basically Australia's largest uh, photo tour operator. So we have uh, staff from different parts around the world running tours to everywhere from Iceland, Greenland, Alaska, Kenya, Galapagos, Patagonia, Amazon, South Georgia, Antarctica, uh, Namibia, Botswana, like every year. So Well, that sounds like it's a difficult thing to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it was pretty, is still quite amazing, except it got to the point yeah. where I was only home for, um, five or six weeks in, in a year and it was in little bits mm -hmm. here and there. I was doing this with my wife, Jessica, and mm -hmm. and it, that was sort of pretty full on. It didn't leave time for, for anything else. So we then slowly started to uh, hand over a lot of the tours to, to other photographers to run them for us. And I would just keep doing the ones that are either I loved too much, like you can't pay someone else to go to, to Kenya for you and, and photograph lions. No. Like that's just ridiculous. That's not progress. So <laughs> we kind of kept a few of my favorite ones and and also I would just do the the new ones, the, the new destinations that were still fun. But also that's where I have more of the enjoyment is trying to I like working out how to run a business, not not actually running the business. I think it, it ties in with that adventuring, doesn't it? that adventurous spirit of yours. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So mm. it's fun while you don't quite know how to make it work or how you're going to get the good logistics into the remote part of the world. And so that's fun working all that out and chartering little mini ships and helicopters and doing all this cool stuff. Meanwhile, while all this was going on, uh, I'd also made the mistake of buying a small wooden sailboat that was completely rotten and up on the uh, east coast of Canada in Halifax. And it was just a friend, a friend of mine who had this opportunity. He bought the boat for something that he decided not to use it for. And he was about to put it back on the market. And he offered it uh, to Jess and me on an interest-free loan for five years. So we didn't have any money at the time, but we thought, well, in five years we might. So cool, let's take that sailboat and go and have an adventure. 
And it took us about a, a year to save the money up to get flights and go over to Canada and check it out. And by then the boat had sort of rotted away to nothing and it was probably worth worth nothing. And we spent a year mm. or a summer, sorry, uh, rebuilding the boat in a car park, ripping it apart and rebuilding it around ourselves while we were living in it. And by the time we got the boat seaworthy and put it in the water, it was time to go home and keep running more photo tours again. So we put the boat back in a car park and went home and, and did more photo tours for a year. And then the following northern summer, we went back to Halifax and put it in the water and set off sailing. So uh, we sailed basically through the Northwest Passage. So that's that uh, waterway over the top of Canada and Alaska through the Arctic. And it turns out no one's ever tried to take a boat quite that stupid through the Northwest Passage before. So it was a, a junk, junk rig sailboat. Uh, so that's that Chinese fan sail arrangement. But the boat was only 29 feet long, so quite tiny really, and made of wood, which is never a good thing to do up in <laughs> with ice everywhere. And, and also it had just been rotten and we just finished scraping out all this rotten wood with our fingernails and putting in, gluing in some new wood. So we, I wasn't quite sure how strong the whole thing was. Um, and Jess had never been on a sailboat in her life, which was probably a saving grace because she didn't really know how dodgy this was. And she was just looking to me to be like, yeah, is this normal? And I'd be like, yeah, totally, totally normal. Let's go. And, and we'd set off and went sailing up the coast and then heading across to Greenland. We went up the west coast of Greenland and got smashed by mm -hmm. a, a pretty terrifying storm, the worst conditions I've ever been in at sea. And the oh. the boat was just yeah it was it was horrendous. Uh, so twelve meter waves and force twelve wind. It was insane, and everything was sort of the boat was making all these cracking noises, and and we didn't have a life raft because it was pretty small. We filled the boat up with other stuff, uh, and it was all a little bit a little bit extreme. Just a little. And yeah. the boat was leaking a little bit, and our our water bladder had ruptured because it banged against something and leaked all of our drinking water into the bilge, which then got automatically pumped yeah. out of the side. And oh, no. so we had this like little emergency supply of water, and Jess was vomiting everywhere to the point of dehydration for for days on end, and couldn't even lift her head up without throwing up everywhere, and the whole boat stank of vomit. Was this because of the rough seas or was this because that was of... That my, my cooking, my cooking basically. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it was the seas. Uh, and so it was, she, gets, she gets pretty badly seasick. Oh, well, good, and, good and then this, spot and to the be then. the conditions were horrendous. Yeah, exactly. But uh, luckily we made it through there alive and um, got to Greenland and discovered that the whole of the Greenland coast was jammed with ice and there was no way to get in. And so we just had to so, kind of turn north and keep sailing up the coast, waiting for a place to be able to get in to lick all of our wounds. But five days later, mm. we found our way into uh, Nuuk, the capital, which had a, was ice-free mm -hmm. ice by then. So we, had, we carried on up there and then got to the top of that sort of uh, Baffin Bay. That's that big gap yeah. between Greenland and the rest of the islands up there. So then we swung swung west and went our way through the, the Northwest Passage. Just the most amazing waterway up there with beautiful ice everywhere and lots of whales and amazing seabirds. And, uh, and because we're such a small boat, we wanted to try and deliberately do it in two seasons. Most boats would try and rush through the whole Northwest Passage in one go, which means even for a bigger, faster boat, it's still a race. And it means you're, you're starting too early in the season. So you get smashed by storms like we did. Uh, and by the time you're popping out the other end at the Bering Strait, which is another n notorious bit of water. Notorious. Uh, it's normally, yes, it is. Yeah. By then, it's normally too late in the season, so you get smashed going through there. 
as we did as well. But um, Albert was so small that we couldn't hope to really do the whole thing in one season. So we planned to winter the boat over on Victoria Island where uh, Clark and I had walked across. So we already had some good, good contacts and friends there. So that was handy. So yeah, because we weren't in a rush to really get through the passage, it just meant we could we could really cruise and we could poke into little islands and go around the back of things and stay for a couple of days and just see the most amazing places. And yeah, then got to this remote uh, Cambridge Bay, the town on Victoria Island, and, and set up a... <laughs> they used a, a really dilapidated old crane and somehow managed to not drop the boat and get it onto this cradle that we'd built and left it on this hill uh, out of the out of the water because the the ocean was already freezing over and it would just crush the boat if you leave leave a wooden boat in the water um, so we just kind of popped it on a hill and had a friend go out there every couple of weeks with his dog team and he would check on the check on the boat got down to minus uh, minus 60 degrees and he would just go out there with his dogs and check the check the boat was still there and then come back into town and send us photos uh, yeah, and then the following season, after running more photo tours, we'd go back and put the boat back in the water, and eventually the ocean melted, and we could keep going west and through through a whole lot more amazing places and filled with polar bears and just the most amazing stuff. And then down through the the Bering Strait again, it was already getting late in the season by then, and so we copped a few few storms, and then actually spent the next or well, three summers after that, gradually cruising down the whole length of the Alaskan coastline you could spend a lifetime exploring all the islands and inlets and glaciers and everything around there and yeah finally got it back to the the, the most northerly bit of canada again by then we were running photo tours to a lot of different destinations but we couldn't run anything in the the arctic really because we've been using the the summer the northern summer for sailing sure so we decided yeah. oh, all right let's um Let's sell the sailboat and then we can start doing running tours to some of these places we've just been to, like Greenland, west coast of Greenland was so beautiful and we just wanted to run photo tours there. Um, so yeah, we sold the boat and then started running uh, Iceland, Greenland photo tours and utilizing the middle part of the year for that. And at the same time also uh, decided to move to, to Christmas Island. So for people who don't know where Christmas Island is, do you want to give them a give them a heads up? So Christmas Island is an amazing place. It is actually part of Australia, but it's really close to Indonesia. So it's like a three and a half hour flight from from Perth, uh, or about a forty minute flight from Jakarta. And so it's a long way west of Perth. It's in the yep. Indian Ocean, uh, thousands yep. of kilometres from anywhere really. And it's just a little remote tropical paradise. Of course, it's had some bad PR uh, due to the detention center that was running on there. And, but that most people think it's like a giant jail island and detention they don't even think island, you can visit. Yes. Yeah. And they're like, wow, they allow visitors? Whoa. And you're like, oh, come on. It's, <laughs> the, the detention center is this little establishment kind of ensconced in one corner of the island in the jungle down a road that you're not allowed to go down and that you wouldn't even know was there. And yeah. Basically, tourists to the island, just unless they happen to have heard about it or if they're Australian or something, then they might know about it. But otherwise, you'd, mm. you'd never know it was operational. And the yeah, reality right. is that that island is just the most stunning, uh, full of natural wonders. It's where, when I was growing up on the sailboat, it's where I learned to snorkel. Mm -hmm. And I just remembered it as this you know, tropical paradise full of unusual birds and crabs and crystal clear water. And so mm -hmm. when I was running these photography tours and we're looking for new destinations all the time, uh, back in about 2000 and 
14, uh, I remembered Christmas Island from my childhood and thought, yeah, maybe we could run a photo tour there. And that was mid-detention yeah. center days, so tourism was pretty low there. Um, yeah. But I, I went there and checked it out, and it was every bit as good as I remembered. In fact, way better. And mm. I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And every year since then, we've been running sold-out photo tours here. But that was only like one trip every year, uh, about May, yeah. middle of the year. And then an opportunity popped up for national parks, put out a call for expressions of interest for someone to build some kind of commercial operation, like a accommodation, an eco-lodge inside the national park. And they, that went out yeah. to public call. And the island was desperate for something like that because it's got such amazing natural beauty, but no, no real eco-accommodation or uh, nothing sort of luxury or high-end or anything where you can actually really just sit back and enjoy all this beauty. And that had mm -hmm. been been sort of missing on our photo tours here like all the other amazing places around the world where we run these trips there are all these amazing eco lodges and christmas island just seemed to be to be lacking that and it was an amazing opportunity so i put in my vision for for what i was imagining could be really cool here and mm -hmm. other companies did the same i was kind of actually hoping some huge company would come in and and win the deal and they would create with their own marketing budget they would rebrand the island and turn it into this wildlife mecca. <laughs> and I would just build this little luxury thing on the side and just mop up the high-end guests. And uh, that was going to be my strategy. But uh -huh. um, unfortunately, the parks only approved my one. So uh -huh. I was left there going, oh, good. Now I have to do so this? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a bit of that. It was like, oh, do we, do we really want to do this? Like, this is a lot to take yeah. on just to try and to rebrand this whole whole island and create this lodge and keep running the photo tours and it's like oh yeah, man that's a full basket um mm. yeah totally but i'm good at biting off more than i can chew so yeah i, I agreed and said right let's do this and we spent uh, about another year designing and and coming up with the this kind of refining the concept and having all these environmental impact assessments and ecologists go out there and do all these surveys and check everything was going to be super zero impact, which is great. Um, you'd want it to be, particularly on a place as sensitive as, as Christmas Island. It's also the first yeah, of yeah. the federally managed national parks to have a, a commercial operation like that inside it. Obviously, most most national parks you think of, they're actually state-run. Um, but there's there's a bunch that are, are federally managed out of Canberra, and this is one of them. Uh, so, yeah, and they'd never done that before. So it was all they were making sure they were you know, crossing every T and dotting every I perfectly. So it was, a, it was a process to go through, but, but it meant we're all better for the, uh, for the end of it, really. I know you haven't revealed this yet, Chris, but the name of your lodge, for me, um, really ticks boxes as well. Do you want to share with everyone what you called it? Uh, we called it Swell Lodge because it's sitting on the coast uh, right in front of this ocean swell that just comes in and crashes onto the shoreline there. It's pretty spectacular. Um, mm. But we do I've have seen the images of it. It's like, stunning. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was mm. a hell of a project to, to build it, as you can imagine, not only on one of Australia's most remote islands, but on the, the far side of that island, down, a, down several kilometres of four-wheel drive track and then a walking trail. So we had to carry every piece of, of steel and huge glass windows and literally carry it by hand, uh, having bumped it for down all these eroded four-wheel drive tracks. And it was a... Yeah, there's, there's, there's no Bunnings here. There's a, there's a little hardware store, but everything basically had to be pre-thought of and ordered and put in the shipping container down to like the last screw. And, wow. uh, and yeah, was, and I'd never done anything like that before. So I learned a hell of a lot. It was a, it was a great project. The first one was 
uh, it aged me like nothing else. But I, I learned I learned a lot. It was good. The second one was was just difficult, really. I'd, I'd already learned the stuff, and it, it, and we're also then running by then. So we had the first lodge up and running, and sure. meanwhile building the second chalet, and that was just it was probably too much. <laughs> But we got there in the So end. tell me, did you did you bring in local local tradesmen or tradesmen or did you bring in people from, from the mainland? How did that all work? I'm just keen to know. Uh, it was a mix, really. Um, I was trying to do this as cheaply as possible because we didn't have any financial backers or uh, didn't borrow any money because it was a pretty risky venture trying to build something like this on, on Christmas Island. Um, so mm -hmm. I wanted to do it just with my savings. So the, the cheapest way to do it possible was to basically do all the building myself. And okay. so also the, the builders here are quite expensive. Everything is pretty expensive on the island. Some trades where legally, obviously, you have to have um, professionals mm -hmm. do it, like a lot of the electrics and the plumbing and, and so on. So, yeah, we engage yeah. locals for that. Um, but just the general kind of handyman building stuff. I, mm -hmm. I did that myself and with um, friends. We'd... we'd pay for airfares of some friends who I hadn't caught up with for a long time and we'd, they'd come and stay for maybe three weeks and give me a hand mm -hmm. and we'd kind of just get, they'd stay in our house and we'd beat them. It was just a great adventure for them and a huge help for me. So, and it was yeah. just a nice chance to be able to catch up with people, good friends that, because my life has been pretty hectic, I never really get a chance to sit down and, and catch up with, with people. And this was a nice excuse to really have two or three weeks solid with some of my best friends and kind of doing this project and mm. it was a really nice way of way of doing it actually so also we did have dick smith paid for the airfares for a couple of of extra builders he said mm -hmm. oh here's some here's some airfares for you can get three extra people to come and help you build this quicker uh i think he saw this dragging on <laughs> and <laughs> so we then put out a put out a competition uh online saying you know all right we've got three airfares who's who's going to apply and we got two sure. two professional builders to come up and for a couple of weeks. It turns out that one of them was mm -hmm. a friend of a friend anyway, and uh, another one was a, was actually a friend. <laughs> but yeah, so that really helped having some people who knew who knew what they were actually doing. That uh, sped up the process a little bit. But between those friends and me and YouTube, we worked it out, yeah. and it, it's, it looks pretty good. You'd never know. <laughs> so now that that's all done, I imagine you've, you've got guests coming and going, but when you're not taking care of guests, when you're not running photo tours, what is the day like for you on Christmas Island? Well, it's, a, it's an amazing place to be able to have some downtime, which I'm only just discovering now. Yeah. So I go free diving every day, uh, running. The, the water here mm -hmm. is, is world-class diving. So it's about 28, 29 degrees every day, all year. Oh. And the visibility is, is somewhere between 30 and 60 meters. And oh my gosh. you can just, there's a, like a beautiful coral reef just right in the cove. You don't even need to go on a boat trip anywhere, but that does give you access to even more places but you can literally just mm -hmm. hop on your bike you know cycle for two minutes down to the cove jump in off the wharf and you're immediately floating above this like a lot of people have said it's just more diverse and spectacular than even the the barrier reef you just wow. slip in and you're surrounded by a kaleidoscope of fish and you get turtles and there's resident dolphins and in the right season you get whale sharks and manta rays and it's just unbelievable and you just sort of, I do that every day just for a quick little little exercise or a reset I'll be sitting at my computer and be like ah I'm, I'm done with this and just mm. in six minutes I'm in the water you know snorkeling above the reef and and then come back oh. it's uh it's amazing well, of course Chris, that sounds incredible it is quite incredible yeah quite quite lucky yeah. and I do appreciate that <laughs> but the island's also <laughs> probably most famously known for its crabs 
the, mm. a lot of your listeners would know of like, David Attenborough's docos where the, the red crabs migrate from the jungle down to the coast yep. to spawn every year. So there's about yep. 50 million of these red crabs. And they're, and they're quite big as well. It's one of the things our photo tour guests and the lodge guests always say when they turn up here. They're like, whoa, I had no idea they're so big. Um, they're, they're as big as a big big person's hand. <laughs> so they're, they're not like little little crabs running around the rocks. They're quite formidable um, guys, but they're, but they're really chilled out. So you can literally walk and, and pick them up, scoop them up in your hands, and they've got these enormous claws, but they just they kind of don't pinch you. I've never been pinched by by a red crab. And you can just literally, you'll be sitting here on my computer inside the house and they'll just wander in. You hear them tapping their way across the floorboards and you're like, oh, stupid crab. And <laughs> clack, if, clack, clack. normally they'll just sort of come in one door and <laughs> clack their way across the floor and then pop out the back door. But sometimes they get lost and they'll be going, doing loops around in the kitchen or something and you'll be like, oh, all right. And you walk over and even in bare feet, you can just kind of shuffle them out of the way, tapping them left and right, guiding them out while you're busy on the phone or something. You don't even have to pay attention to them because they're, they're never going to bite you. So what does the future hold for Chris Bray? That's a good question. I don't know at the moment. We're just at the end of having built this, this uh, lodge. Um, they're still running the photo tours. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Still, I guess, with pandemic going on um i've had to reinvent the mm -hmm. sort of income streams online so i've been focusing on a few few other things like some some books and ebooks and things and i've got a my whole photography course is now online for free it's a series of 10 videos and that's getting a lot of traction about two and a half million people have watched that now and mm -hmm. um, so that's getting generating a little bit yeah, of a and revenue you very generously shared that with us yep. as well so people are loving doing that while they're stuck at home trying to work out what to do uh, people are upskilling and learning photography and uh, I'm getting a little bit of money from the adverts that go in the front of that. So that's a one income stream, a few mm -hmm. things. Uh, there's obviously no tourists okay. on the island yet, so kind of just in maintenance mode. I was getting the rust out of the Land Cruiser yesterday and mm -hmm. just doing little, little jobs, odds and ends. But next chapter, I really don't know. So tell me, if people are interested in seeing your photography, in staying at Swell Lodge, where's the best place for them to head to? If you're looking for the lodge, you could just search for Swell Lodge, Swell mm -hmm. like the ocean, and that's pretty easy. You'll find that straight away, Swell Lodge on Christmas, uh, Christmas Island. Um, but if you're looking for photography, yep. then just my name, really, Chris Bray Photography. So you'll find my Instagram account, um, lots of just cool photos whenever I get the time. I put some, some images up there. And we've got Facebook as well and the website, same thing. So just chrisbrayphotography.com and you'll find okay. it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. And um, I'm hoping that um, when you do figure out what you're doing um, next, you'll be joining us again on the podcast and we can catch up some more. Thanks very much, Liz. I really enjoyed that. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.